Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Psalm 125. Psalm 125. Psalm 125 is about the difference between God's promises and our perception. It's about the distance between faith and our feelings. Do you know that difference? Do you feel that difference at times between what God has promised and what you perceive about the world around you? Do you at times feel the tyranny of your feelings and your perceptions over what God has said in his word? I do. For me, that's a constant struggle. In essence, I think it is the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. God has said A, B, or C, or X, Y, and Z, and, and yet it, it doesn't feel like he has. It, it doesn't seem like he has. We don't see it yet. And of course, that's what faith is. It's not seeing. Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. On the one hand, faith is easy. It's easy to simply lean upon him, to rest upon him, to simply receive from him. On the other hand, faith is hard. It's a struggle. The Christian life is described as the fight of faith. In the fight of faith... We rehearse to ourselves and to each other what God has said and that it's true and that we can rely on it today and tomorrow and forever. In the fight of faith, we keep preaching to ourselves that a million things that are unseen are true. A million things hidden are actually happening. Psalm 125 helps us with that. Let's look at it. It's a song of ascents. It says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Well, the first three verses are loaded with imagery and theology and promises of comfort. The first three verses of the psalm will occupy most of our time this morning. They're about promises. That's our first point. There are promises here for those who trust in God. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Do you trust in the Lord this morning? Do you trust in the Lord? I don't mean do you have trust in some sort of metaphysical being out there. I don't mean do you have some trust in some religion. Do you trust in the Lord? 
in this Lord, Yahweh, the one who revealed his name as the I am who I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the garden and creation, the God of the promises, the God who has a son, and his son is also God. And his son came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he lived righteously and he died sacrificially. He rose victoriously and now he lives and reigns forevermore. Do you trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness for the forgiveness of sins? Because if not, then Psalm 125 is not to be a comfort to you. At least not yet. It can be. It can be today. We'll talk about how later. For now, this speaks to those who know something of trusting in the Lord, know something of being his people, know something of having his nearness about them. And for them, these promises are so rich and so comforting and so needed. They're needed because... We're pilgrims, and we're not home yet. These were songs to be sung on the way to Jerusalem, and sometimes the way there was difficult. And our way to God is sometimes difficult. We're in this world which isn't our home, and at times we don't feel at home in it. We've come to God already through Jesus, but we're going to God as well, and we're not yet there. So we have great hope, but the path there is sometimes hard. Those who trust have great hope. To trust is to depend, to hope, to lean upon. It sounds very hopeful and maybe easy, but it's not. Trust, at least here, implies the presence of trouble. There's the need to to trust or to depend, or to rely. Trust here is not simply to believe or have faith. It's not the same thing. This is to rely on, to lean on, to depend upon, and hence to have the need to rely on and depend upon. So if you find yourself needy this morning, Christian or not, if you find yourself limping along, threatened, in trouble, weighed down with guilt or worry, maybe you've even been tempted this week to reach out your hand to trust in something besides the Lord, well, you've come to the right place, and this psalm is of great help to you. It's good medicine. Those who trust are secure That's the imagery of verse 1. Mount Zion can't be moved, and neither can God's people. Mount Zion is Jerusalem. Now, some believe that Mount Zion was the name for that place even before King David conquered it, occupied it, and named it Jerusalem, the city of peace. The Jebusites had it for hundreds of years before that, and they may have called it Mount Zion, And if so, David using that term reminds us how for hundreds of years their occupation of that land went unchallenged because it was supremely fortified. It was high up. 
No one dared lay siege to the mountain until David did one day, and with God's help, he had victory and took it for his people. We've seen in movies, haven't we, how there's a great advantage to a fortress or a citadel that's up high and on a mountain and has cliffs down below. We also know experientially the difference between walking on shifting sand and walking on solid rock. We all know the difference between mud that is slippery and we're sliding on it versus dry rock where it grips and you don't move. We've experienced the difference between hundreds of little pebbles under our feet that roll and give way versus one solid rock that doesn't move and is flat and is hard. And, and, and it's so solid, it, no matter how much you jump on it, even if you fall on it, it's solid. Mount Zion is a bedrock which can't be moved forever and ever. That's, of course, not a geological statement. Earth had to move in order to form that mountain, and most mountains are continuing to be in movement very slowly. But the psalmist isn't a geologist. He's a pilgrim, a pilgrim who knows the experience the difference between crumbling dirt, which gives way underfoot and leads to a fall, and solid rock, which doesn't. So God's people are like Mount Zion. Those who trust in the Lord can't be moved. They abide with the Lord forever and ever. I'm sure this morning many of us feel as though the ground beneath us is shaky. I bet many of us this morning feel as though our next step could be a bad spill. If so, then trust. Just trust in God. Those who trust in him are not like dandelions. They're gone. It's not like a, a paper airplane caught in the wind. Those who trust in the Lord are not like grass that gets burnt up under the desert sun. Those who trust in the Lord are not like tumbleweeds. Those who trust in the Lord are like that famous citadel mountain. It's solid. It's certain. It's unshakable. Those who trust in the Lord are also surrounded, according to verse 2. There's a mixing of metaphors. Now, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Jerusalem was itself a mountain, but then around it were other mountains, some of which were higher than that Jerusalem mount. And then foothills around that. I'd encourage you to Google it. Not now. If you have a smartphone and you're using that for your Bible, don't get tempted to Google it. Google it later, but Google it. Google Jerusalem mountains, and you'll see layers upon layers of mountains and foothills and crags and curves. We know that there's a reason why many cities began where they did, often on a side of a mountain or often in between some hills. Not long ago, uh, William and I, my son and I, were uh, taking a motorcycle ride, and we were in the foothills, the north end of the foothills, and if you've ever gone up in that direction, you may have seen what we saw, this, this little cabin 
No windows, no roof, but walls still there, probably built in the early 1800s. We got off the bike and did some exploring, and I said to William, you can see why someone was walking through here and said, this is it. We're stopping here. We're building a little house here for our little family. It, it just is it's serene. It's surrounded. It, you couldn't see that little house from the elevation below. There was something in the way. You, you can imagine how wind would be, you know, sort of distributed with, with hills on both sides. And, of course, you've got the, the giant Sandia Peak behind which causes weather to sort of come from the east toward the west and skip over or even stop at our mountain. It's fascinating living in town to, to see how many storms, how, how much weather just sort of comes to the top of that mountain and then just mysteriously stops there. I'm sure some of us would like a little more rain. Maybe we'd like it more green but that's not my point. My point is the protection that we have, how that mountain is like an illustration for us. Whenever we want here in this wonderful city of ours, we can glance to the east and we can see a mountain that sort of is a protection, a guard. It surrounds us. And so we need to say frequently to ourselves and to our kids and to each other, as the Sandias surround Albuquerque, so the Lord surrounds his people. He protects them. And he's with them. There's presence with the protection. He doesn't just protect from a distance, although that can be a source of comfort as well. Psalm 123, back a couple weeks ago, there we learned that God is enthroned in heaven. So he sees all, he's above it all. That can be comforting. But our psalm today, 125, comforts us with a God who's near, who surrounds, who is on the ground, so to speak. Again, here is where we must walk by faith and not by sight. It doesn't always feel like he's near. We don't feel his arms around us. We don't sometimes sense his presence there. Sometimes it's difficult to believe that he is there or that he does care or that he does hear our prayers. Maybe it seems like the storms of life continue to beat upon you without any protection. Maybe you feel, unlike that little cabin in the foothills, you're just out there, exposed, vulnerable, alone. Well, don't trust your feelings if that's you. Don't trust your feelings. Faith isn't what you see, but confidence in what he said. Don't trust your perception of what's going on around you, but instead lean upon his promises for you given in his word. Don't we know from experience Time after time, we've had these seasons where it seemed like he's not near, it seems like he doesn't hear or doesn't care, and then eventually the clouds sort of part. We don't see all things clearly, but eventually you can see his hand, his protection. We realize it could have gone worse. It, it, it got solved somehow. We learned from last week 
that wonderful exercise from Psalm 124 where we imagine what if the Lord had not? Imagine, what if? What if he'd not been our help? What if he'd not been our side? How much harm and trouble and suffering has he kept us from? Who knows? It's incalculable. But if you take just a few minutes to ponder what you know and then ponder some things you don't know, you very quickly put your hand over your grumbling mouth and you say, God, you've been so good. God is so good. He is so good to me. We know that from experience. We also have occasional scenes in the Bible where the curtain is pulled back and the unseen all of a sudden is seen. We should take those to heart even though the Lord doesn't give us those. He gave it to others so that we would know that there's something going on behind the scenes. I think of 2 Kings 6, the story of Elijah. There's threat there upon God's people, and Elijah says to his servant, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And then it says Elijah prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open the eyes of my servant so that he may see. And the Lord opened his eyes, and he saw, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Isn't that great? You don't know what you can't see, but it's there. We trust it. What's more, those who trust are unassailable. According to verse 3, unassailable. That's the best word I could come up with for what's going on in verse 3. God's people are unassailable. You see, in verse 3, we start to get some clarity about the reason for this psalmist needing to trust in God. And we also learn the way in which God will protect and surround. It says, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. That's a little thick, but here's what it's saying. There's the threat or trouble of potentially being conquered by a wicked foreign king. And if so, then God's people would be tempted to reach out, to compromise, to... to, to make whatever arrangement they could in order to keep whatever they possibly could. But God won't allow it. He won't allow it. Think of all those battles in the days of, say, Joshua or Judges or Kings or First and Second Samuel where the threat was great, where God gave the victory, but if he hadn't, If David was killed, another king would take his place and rule over that people. But by God's grace, that didn't happen because God's people are unassailable. They're unconquerable, not in their own strength, not whatsoever. It's God's doing. He won't let the scepter of wickedness rest over his people. Are you getting the picture of the scepter? The scepter being a king's ruling staff. And a wicked king may wave his scepter and send his troops into battle against God's people. 
A wicked king may for a time raise up his scepter in victory over God's people, but God says here, the scepter will not rest on God's people. Not finally, even though it looks like it will, or even for a time appears to do. Would you turn back in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings? 2 Kings 18 is really important to Psalm 125. Now, last week, I asked you to go home and consider reading Isaiah 37 about the story of God's rescue of uh, Hezekiah when there was a Syrian threat. Well, 2 Kings 18 is actually the same exact story, except this one has all kinds of important connections to our psalm. So let's think about this again. Even if you read Isaiah 37 last week, this, I think, will be useful to you this week. It was around 700 B.C. that Hezekiah was king over Judah. And in those days, the Assyrian army was doing their best imitation of the Nazis in the late 30s and early 40s in their conquest of nation after nation in murder after murder. The king of Assyria... Sennacherib, a wicked guy with a wonderful name. You just imagine that he always got ribs, you know, for dinner or, or for snacks. He began sending messengers to Hezekiah with threats, with ultimatums. He began demanding tribute, taking gold and silver even from the temple itself. Let's pick up in verse 19 where a messenger comes to Hezekiah. And the Reb Shekah said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the real king, the king of Assyria, on what rest, on what do you rest this trust of yours? What's our psalm about? Those who trust. So watch for trust. It's all over. What do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. You hear the mockery? Let's make a deal. Let's make it peaceable. I'll give you 2,000 horses, though I doubt any of you even know how to ride. Look at verse 28. Here a messenger says to the soldiers of Judah. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, come out to me, 
Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of you his own fig tree, each one of you will drink the water his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. So what will they do? What will the soldiers do? Will they stretch out their hand towards this great king because they perceive that the the scepter of the wicked king is going to rest on their land eventually anyway? Will this great king Sennacherib rest his scepter upon little old Judah? It doesn't look good because the northern tribes, they're all decimated at this point. What will King Hezekiah do? Well, as I mentioned last week, he prayed. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And there he prayed. And then he sent for Isaiah the prophet. And he asked Isaiah to pray. And he asked if Isaiah had a word from the Lord. About verse 6 or 7, God speaks through Isaiah. He says, essentially, don't be afraid. This king, I've heard his, his mockeries, and he won't have success. He won't have his way. You will be protected. In fact, I'll soon return him to his own land. So Hezekiah heard from the Lord. He got a promise. It's going to happen. But the struggle for faith is real. What do you do when you wait on the promises to come? You pray, and you pray some more. The fight of faith continues in verse 10. Look at verse 10 of chapter 19. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Of course, this is the king of Assyria speaking to him with more taunts. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard of what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting to them destruction, and shall you be delivered? Verse 14, Hezekiah received this letter from the hand of the messengers. He read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. And we don't even need to read his prayer. You you know what it is. It's a help prayer. It's a God, please save. Please do what you said you would do. All right, let's put the Hezekiah story on hold. Go back to Psalm 125. We'll actually come back to 2 Kings in just a little bit here. Psalm 125. We've considered the promises of Psalm 125, promises which are needed for God's people in all ages, not least in the days of Hezekiah with the Assyrian threat, not least in our days of political unease, racial tensions, financial uncertainties, unrelenting floodwaters. We need to trust God. And those who do are secure and surrounded and assailable, unassailable. But when it looks threatened, when it seems unsure, when there's distance between the promise and perception, 
They pray. So secondly, in verse 4, the prayer of those who trust in God. The prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Just because God promised the outcome doesn't mean we don't need to pray about it. Praying for what God promised is one of the greatest things we can ever do. We are tying in to what we know to be the perfect mind of God and the will of God. God has promised to do good to his people. In the days of Jeremiah, he said, I will do them good with all my heart and with all my soul. But you might hesitate with verse 4 of Psalm 125 because it says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts. And you might wonder, well, then who is good? Am I good? Is anyone good? Is even godly Hezekiah good enough to say, do good to those who are good? And the answer is yes. And you can pray like that too. Because those who are good are not perfectly righteous. They're those who trust. They are sinners who trust. And they rely upon the Lord. They depend upon him Yes, for security. Yes, for safety. Yes, for his surrounding presence. But first and foremost, for salvation. For salvation. And David said, oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, oh, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness with this God. And those who trust in that forgiveness, well, they do good. And they're upright in their hearts. They've come to agree with God about their sin and their need for his salvation. That's what it means to be upright in heart. It doesn't mean to always be moral or to never have bad motives. To be upright in heart means to be right with him and to be honest with him. It means to be straight up with God. That's the godly. They're not crooked. Are you? Are you straight up with God about your greatest needs? Are you in line with him about what your greatest need is and what the solution is? Because if you do, you trust God like that, and you're upright like that, then you know this. Then relatively speaking, you're good. Relatively speaking, you want to do good. It's not of your own doing. It's his doing, but we want to do good as Christians, don't we? He's made a difference in our hearts. We don't do it perfectly by any means, but he's made us to be different. Hezekiah and Sennacherib were both kings and both sinners, but they weren't the same. God made Hezekiah to be a man who would lean on God not trust himself, not reach out his hand to the wicked for a deal, and to pray to God. Christians pray. They don't pray as well as they should. They don't pray as often as they should. But Christians pray. That's a blood-bought gift that Jesus gives us. To quote the great theologian of the 1980s, M.C. Hammer, we need to pray just to make it today. That's why we pray. <laughs> Christians pray. Christians 
Christian, pray simple, honest, humble prayers before the Lord, boldly leaning upon what he promised. Do good, O Lord. Do us good. I don't know what that's going to look like. I pray, do good to me with some sort of nervousness because I don't know what you have in mind for my good. But I've learned to trust you. Help me trust you more. Do me good with all your heart and soul just as you promised. We don't now see you. We won't see how you work necessarily, but we're going to believe you. Help our unbelief. And thank you for surrounding us. Thank you for being such a rock-solid God. Well, we've seen the promises of those who trust, the prayer of those who trust, and then in verse 5, all that is contrasted. The path of those who turn aside. What's their path? But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. He'll lead them away. That's their path. They've turned aside to crooked ways. The Lord will lead them away. That's where it's going. What a contrast we have in the psalm. At the beginning, those who trust can't be moved. At the end, those who turn aside will be led away. Led away. Let's go back to 2 Kings 19, if you would. Please turn to 2 Kings 19. This is good stuff. I know I'm, I'm biased, but this isn't a sermon. This is Bible here. 2 Kings 19. Remember, we left off with Hezekiah praying, and the Lord answered that Assyrian king is no threat. He'll be returned to his own land. The Assyrian king threatened and mocked again. Hezekiah prayed once again. So then, God once again spoke to Hezekiah. That's new information in our story we're reading this morning. And now he speaks a much longer word to Hezekiah than he did before. In verse 21 and following, we find that word for Hezekiah, a word of comfort from God, but it's actually spoken as a judgment directly to the Assyrian king. Just the last verse will be enough for us. Verse 28 where God says to the Assyrian king, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Or in the language of our psalm, the Lord will lead them away. And that's exactly what happened. In verse 35, the angel went out in the night and wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And then verse 36, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home. He went home like a sad boy. Because God said the scepter of wickedness will not rest on 
that land. There's no need to stretch out your hand for a deal to get 2,000 horses that you can't ride. There's no need to turn to crooked ways to save some modicum of security and safety. Those who trust in Mount Zion, they don't move. They abide forever and ever. The Lord surrounds them even when you can't see his surrounding and all you see is Assyrians. He's there. I find Psalm 125 and the story of King Hezekiah to be enormously encouraging. What a partnership they have. A song with unparalleled poetic imagery about God's promises of protection and a vivid narrative illustration to prove to us that it's true. But I wouldn't be surprised if you're here this morning and you're not quite with me. I wouldn't be surprised even if you know the Bible really well and you're a clear thinker. You might be scratching your head this morning how exactly we get from Psalm 125 past the days of Hezekiah. Because you might know the Babylonians are coming. The Babylonians are coming right after Hezekiah dies. You might know that a hundred years after Hezekiah, Jerusalem was laid waste and the people were stripped from their land. This land that God says, these people that God says he surrounds and protects and are secure and stable. You might know that a hundred years after that exile, the people are back in the land and they have a temple, but they're still under foreign rulers. The scepter of the wicked is over them. You might know that in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had their land, had their temple, had their worship, but it was all under Pax Romano, the peace of Rome, which was hardly peace. It was the hard rule of Rome. All that would be fair to pose to the promises of Psalm 125. But it's that kind of thinking that got in the way of those who were around Jesus when he walked this earth. Remember, there were many who thought he was the Messiah. But they had a certain idea of Messiah in mind. A warrior king who would wipe out Rome, who would get back the land, who would bring in a, 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 a space of peace. And this Jesus, yes, was the Messiah, but they got very mad when he insisted that he did not come to bring a sword. They hated him when he welcomed the lowly and foreigner. They hated him when he said that the problem is not outside of you, but inside of you. They hated him when he said that their greatest problem was not Rome, but a lack of righteousness and rebellion and fake religion. Even his disciples couldn't comprehend as they walked to Jerusalem why it wouldn't be just a bloodbath. He can do miracles. He's the son of God. Here it goes. It's going down. They, they at times seem excited. Then Jesus tells them again, no, I'm going to Jerusalem to be rejected by my people and to be crucified and to die. 
And they think this is some sort of parable or illustration or word picture. They can't get it that he actually means it. But he does. The plan all along was to be rejected by his own and to be killed on a cross by the very Romans that his people thought he was coming to kill. But it had to go that way because the greatest problem in this world is not Rome or ISIS. It's sin in general, and that's in the heart of every human being. The greatest problem in this world and the one that causes all of the geopolitical wars, let alone disagreements or arguments we have, is the problem of human rebellion against God. Jesus came to be a king, but not the kind of king that takes it by force and not the one that makes peace by force. He is our peace because he was our ransom. That's the word he used. Ransom, payment for sin. And that was the plan all along, as I said. For a time in the Old Testament, while God was promising a deliverer to come from Zion, he was simultaneously illustrating for us and for all who would come after Israel, illustrating the problem of sin and his power to redeem He was illustrating that through a nation, a city, a hill. But once Jesus was crucified upon that hill, everything changed. The book of Hebrews helps us so much with this. How we get from the Old Testament to Jesus and beyond. Here's how Hebrews begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Isaiah, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He reigned supreme. As verse 8 of Hebrews 1 says, Of the Son of God, the Old Testament says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews says the Old Testament was looking ahead to Jesus, the Son of God, and his righteous scepter has been set down. Nowadays, the scepter of the wicked, a bunch of puny sticks. The scepter of the wicked doesn't rest anywhere in this world, no matter what it seems like. It can't. Only Christ rules this world now. He rules the seen and the unseen. Human beings and demons. He rules it all. And he rules just fine. Despite what our headlines seem to imply, and despite what we feel when things in our lives seem to go wrong, he rules this world just fine. The scepter of 
ISIS will not rest. The scepter of Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or the Supreme Court will not rest over God's people. We have one captain of our souls, one author and finisher of our faith. So on him, we put all trust and we don't trust in princes or chariots. Those who trust in him. That is Jesus, the God-man, and trust specifically in his blood and righteousness, they're like Mount Zion. They can't be moved. They'll abide forever and ever. They're surrounded by God's presence, and they even have God's presence within them. They have come to Mount Zion. Oh, not that mountain, that historic mountain in the Middle East. They have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels, to the heaven's assembly of God's people. They've come to God, the judge of all. They've come to the spirits who've been made perfect. They've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. They've come to the blood. Therefore, it says in Hebrews 12, let us Be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, Psalm 125 isn't shaky because Jesus didn't come to destroy the Romans. Psalm 125 is all the more sure because Jesus came to provide redemption for every kind of people and nation and tongue in this whole world. He invites all who would come to come into a kingdom which can't be shaken. What's like, what in your world can't be shaken? we, We know physical mountains actually can be shaken. What can't be shaken in your world? On this depend to him. Look and lean and trust. In just a minute we'll sing My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Will you sing that with us? Will you sing it in truth? Will you sing it in faith? I pray today you would trust in this Lord. Because with him, security, safety, he surrounds his people. They're unassailable. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grand providence and plan. And Lord, we thank you for your promises, for what you've done in our hearts because of Jesus. On him we depend and lean. We trust and rest. We pray for those with us who haven't yet come to do that, that they would today, that they would build their hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Help us as Christians, Lord, to keep trusting you, to keep praying to you, and Lord, to keep ourselves from turning aside, to reach out our hands, to trust in other things or people. Keep us, Lord, close to yourself, and help us, we pray, to talk to others, to help them see the futility of wicked rebellion 
and crooked paths and the blessing of being straight up with you and the joy that comes by trusting in Jesus alone. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.